0: So, time travel movies. You know, I love them. Uh, in those movies or stories, you know, if you go back in time, and you make the slightest change in history, it has massive implications, right? And the slightest change that you go back and make in time has like this domino effect, right? And it just, if it if you are just going back a few days, maybe there's just a little bit of change that happened, but if you go back and you make a change 500 years ago in history, then it's gonna have bigger implications. Like, some major world event didn't happen because that domino effect d- didn't lead it that way, or some people don't exist because, um, you know, this particular person didn't bump into this particular person on the street anymore, and then that romance didn't start, and that baby wasn't created, or. Um, or some people are entirely different, they turn out entirely differently than they would have turned out God has written a story in which he has placed every person and every event perfectly to bring about the ending that he wants I am a strong believer in the sovereignty of God and I believe that nothing in this story that God has unfolded and is unfolding is out of He knew how each person would affect all other people. He knew how each event in time would affect all other later events. And everything that God has done in the story happens for a purpose. Uh, The Gospel of Mark that we're studying now is one chapter or paragraph or word of that story. And before we start Mark 14 tonight, I want to just have a little bit of a, a training. I. I really, really hope that we can walk away from the book of Mark like taking away some key content and uh, certainly that we'll walk away from the book of Mark's loving Jesus more. But I, my overarching goal is to also um, help us to understand and to articulate the very core of the gospel message. Mark's the gospel and maybe the shortest version of, of the gospel. Uh, Mark's a gospel. What, what's gospel mean? We've talked about it a couple times. Good news. Good news. Good news. Um, that can sound a little boring. Think of it like this. A really important announcement. Good news might sit on a newspaper stand somewhere. But an announcement. like This is good news to, to be announced. The beginning of this gospel of Mark starts out by saying in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's a gospel about a person. We've talked about this, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the name of the man. Christ is Messiah or an anointed one or, or king. And uh, Son of God, is he's, he's divine. He's, he's a part of, of God himself. So, the gospel, the good, important announcement of the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus. And then, also in chapter 1, we read, after John was arrested, this is verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, because that's what you do with gospel, and proclaim it, and saying, this is what Jesus was saying, proclaiming the gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel the time is at hand the Jews had received through their prophets announcements of a coming Messiah who would bring God's kingdom and Jesus was preaching the gospel of God saying that time is close the time of God's kingdom is closer it's near So he says, change your mind, that's what repent means, or turn around, change your direction in life and believe the gospel, because the kingdom is coming. I want to point out just in those two verses, verse 1 and verse 14 of chapter 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. Um, We can see just in those verses alone, some key elements of the gospel. So this is just before we actually get into the passage. And we're going to use this the next, um, at least a couple times in the, what, the final few two chapters of the book. Three key elements of the gospel, we'll say the gospel. There's other gospels, but this is the gospel of Jesus. As Christians, we'll call it the gospel, right? Um, I'll just go ahead and put these here. Kingdom. Some of the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, talk a, a little bit more even about kingdom than Mark does. But, uh, King, Jesus. This is just the language that we're going to use uh, moving forward or that I'm going to use I would argue that if you are telling the content of the gospel okay, there's there's a lot of lot to say about the gospel in a lot of ways that it affects this but if you're just telling the content of the core of the gospel I think it's important that we elaborate on these at, at least these three things you might not use this terminology you, you, you know you don't have to memorize some definition that I'm going to give you, but these concepts that we're going to talk about for a minute, I think are are key if if we're truly understanding the the core, the content of of the message of the gospel. Um, So first of all, just briefly, the kingdom. Kingdom, it's a little hard to understand. We talked about it the first week. I I said a word, or I offered up a word to say, what's, uh, what's a word that helps us to understand kingdom? Do you remember what that was? Like, anytime you see the word kingdom of God, what could you kind of substitute to help you understand what that means since it's a vague kind of concept? Remember? Okay, uh, rain. rain. So, anywhere you, wherever God reigns, there his kingdom is. Okay? Where do we see, then, God's kingdom? If you think historically, if you think presently, you think in the future, where do we see God's kingdom? If it's wherever God reigns, where where can we notice that? There's diff- some different ideas I have on this. Wherever God reigns, there his kingdom is. So where can we see his kingdom? Church. Or... Okay, so, so the church. I, on a really good day... <laughs> When Christians are living out the, the principles of life in the kingdom that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, if, if Christians are living out love your neighbor as yourself, you're seeing a glimpse of the kingdom of God, where God reigns. He's reigning in our hearts, in our lives. That's good. Where else? Historically, future, where do you see pieces of the kingdom of God, the reign of God?
1: I mean historically you see it embodied or supposed to be embodied in Israel Um, in the future you see it in like a promised reign of God in the full consummation of his kingdom and then as far as like the present we know that there's principalities and powers, Satan has authority in some senses in the world and over the darkness of the world but at the same time through the death and resurrection Jesus now is like seated at the right hand of the Father and, Like so he's still reigning currently Yeah. but there's like a it's not it's not that it's not ultimate I, the phrase is just it's already but not yet that I'm trying to avoid but that's what it is
0: yeah right so, okay, you said a couple of things. It the, the kingdom of Israel back in the day, again on a really good day, on the few good days that we can read about in scripture, they're they're demonstrating they're they're coming under the reign of God, right? That's what they're supposed to be doing as they as they live as his people. Um and fail I, maybe I, I don't think as often or I don't think well, anyway, I don't want to compare it to the church, but on a really good day, in Israel, um heaven or, or new creation is is maybe the, the final um, picture or the final place that we will see kind of the, the reality of the kingdom of God before us. Maybe even before that, back in the Garden of Eden, I think, well, that's when before the fall in the garden, you see a complete submission, at least for some moments, I guess, of 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 submission to God's reign. God was reigning in the garden over creation, over Adam and Eve, I suppose, for a time. And so a bit of the kingdom of God there. Um, we see a bit of the kingdom of God now among us. God is is reigning currently. Like you're saying, Austin, it, it's now, it's happening now, but it's also still to come kind of in its fullness. What There's one other place in history that we see really clearly the the kingdom of God. Tabernacle. Okay, so tie. I'll tie the tabernacle into uh, the Israel and that kingdom. It's in a person. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. So in Jesus, he's he's the Son of God who always does the will of the Father. Right. So everything that Jesus does, he is is showing the kingdom out of himself. If I'm, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but that's the, the clearest demonstration that we have of God's kingdom in our time and space is Jesus and the way that he lived. Interestingly, in and, and so many of those things you see, man, when when God when creation is living under the reign of God, like in Eden and sometimes in the people of Israel, it's massive blessing. It's massive flourishing of life. It's massive, it's prosperity. It's all, all good things. Creation, as it's supposed to, supposed to thrive, happens when creation is submitting to the reign of God. When it's not, that stuff goes kaput. So, another part of um, another element within that kingdom of God is that if, if we're talking about the kingdom of God with somebody, maybe reign is a good way to describe it. Um, but a key part of that kingdom is. That it has been, like Austin is alluding to, it's been subverted by Satan and by humans' unwillingness to submit to the reign of God. And so what God designs to be perfect, everyone and everything living in blessing and prosperity and harmony has crashed, and, and so we have a, a corrupted kingdom. One hour or one are two. David with two. Just some, like we have to, that's that's part of our understanding. The, the kingdom of God, there's something that is not being expressed in the kingdom of God right now. I'll talk more about that in a second. But another part of the kingdom is, and this is the good news, somehow it's still available. Even though it's been corrupted in the fall, even though it's corrupted with Satan and all of his powers. Uh, temporarily uh, being a, a prince over this world and having this false kingdom set up, there is the kingdom of God still available uh, to us. That's, this is where the good news starts to come, okay? So all of that kingdom, this is kind of information. Again, we don't have to, like, memorize the specific uh, verbiage about it, but these are, these are important just concepts to understand that the gospels especially talk very clearly about the kingdom of God. So, what would it sound like? Somebody, just play back for me. Uh, what would it sound like to talk to somebody about the kingdom of God? If you just like, if you just thought, man, I need to, sh- I need to share the gospel with somebody right now. This first element of kingdom. Don't talk about the king yet. Don't talk about the call. Just like, what would it, what would it sound like to, to talk about the kingdom in a couple of sentences? Anybody dare?
1: I mean, it seems like it could be as simple as in the beginning, um, God created the earth, and in that He was reigning. When He created Adam and Eve, and uh, until sin corrupted um, us, and uh, He wanted to still be with His people, and so He chose a people. To dwell with, and but they still couldn't get it right because they were corrupted, and so eventually, were they were awaiting um, the earthly king um, to make things right. That's, I guess. Okay.
0: Yeah, and within that, just kind of using these elements, it, it's it's corrupted and. It is still available and one day all things will be made right I think we can talk to people about so the kingdom exists it was created it's this is the way that God intends for life to be perfect harmony it's what like I mean you can talk to somebody about God's kingdom it's, it's, it's the way in some ways it's the way we wish that the world was where there weren't any problems um, the kingdom has been corrupted I, I like to kind of personally bring up this is just language that everybody almost everybody agrees with let's talk about the sad kind of state that the world is in and all of the corruption. And I mean, it's, it's easy to mention a few things and to find agreement with people and, um, just this, the fallen, what, what could be so beautiful, this world and all that is in it is, is just corrupted by something. We know what that is, but, um, that's, that's what we should expect. This is how I would describe it. That's what we should expect. If we drift away from the Creator's intent and we say, I don't want to submit to that rain, then we expect things to start falling apart. If God says, here, put this plant and water it and soil it and put it in the sun, and then we take it and we don't give it any nutrients we put in the closet, we should expect that that plant is slowly just going to kind of start to die away. We're not doing what the Creator said we should be doing with it. And so it starts to fail. But the kingdom is still available, and we can talk to people about that uh maybe it was a little easier for for jesus to tell and the disciples to tell the jews about because they were expecting some kind of restored kingdom for israel um for those maybe nowadays uh who don't think so much about spiritual things um they need to know that everything wrong in the world has a a solution and um Again, personally, I like to talk about how humanity historically has not been able to fix our problems. Like, first of all, we disagree about, I mean, think of our country for a minute. We disagree about the solutions to our problems. Not only do we disagree about it, but our solution to fix one thing sometimes messes up another thing, right? I think about. One time, Mary Beth and I went to a fast food place after minimum wage was being increased or something. Good idea, let's increase minimum wage, Um, until we found out the the worker there was like, Mary Beth made a comment about how expensive the food had become, and the, the employee that was working there was like, I know I can't even afford to eat here anymore. It's like, okay, the, the guy that's making a minimum wage he's making a little bit more, but it's also affecting prices. And so so we, we fix one thing maybe, and it causes something else to get stirred. There's probably better examples of that. Um, and even when we create a system, a good system that's going to help in, in what it's supposed to do, a lot of times maybe you can think of examples of this but we don't even keep our own system, right? We, we break our own rules that we make. So maybe we vote for certain um, taxes to be taken out of our paycheck. Cool, good idea. I'm happy to give to these different things that the government is gonna do. But in the meantime, everybody tries to limit their tax responsibility as much as they possibly can because they don't wanna have to pay those taxes, right? So it's like, even the systems that we create, we kind of go against. So anyway, all this, um, the kingdom, it exi- Like everything that we want actually exists, the created intent for everything, it, 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 it was created by God, Humanity, sin, Satan has corrupted that, and now we um, uh, can't seem to get it right ourselves. So, the second concept, because we can talk a lot about the kingdom, um, but the way back to the kingdom is through the king, right? This is what Hassan said, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, what we've seen in this gospel. Um, that Mark is wanting to lay out is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. We said this a few minutes ago. He's the son of God. That's kind of Mark's uh, thesis statement at the beginning of the book. Um, how can we talk to people about that word Messiah if they have like no Jewish background or whatever? Um, think king. Think ruler. Think commander or deliverer like a a warrior like all these ideas kind of wrapped up in this word Messiah, the son of God you can think uh, divine power and authority especially see when Jesus raises from the dead Um, but the gospel message is not just about who the person who this king is but it's about what the king has done So we have Mark, in this case, not only wanting to communicate that Jesus is King and Messiah, and he is the Son of God, but what he has done. And so we have this book um, that highlights a particular point in time that it's clear if you look at the, the structure of this book, what, what the key event and everything is, and it 's what we 're about to get to in these next couple chapters the death and resurrection of Jesus the gospel doesn 't exist you can 't talk about the gospel and have have actually spoken the truth of the content of the gospel without mentioning the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ this book scripture could not be more clear the gospel is the culmination of all of the events of god 's story um, So we have this this epic, multi-century spanning story, and within that story, there are four decent-sized books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are all describing a lot of the same events, one key period of history, right? There's none other that do that. We have a couple, like Chronicles kind of goes back, remember, it talks about a lot of uh, things that have already happened as, as kind of one repetition of that. But the Gospels like four times, people talking about the life of Jesus, and even after the Gospels and the Epistles, like they're still talking about this person of Jesus, this king and what he's done. In the book of Mark, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, what he's accomplished, I should write that down, um, is a third of the book of Mark. I think it's actually more of uh, at least one of the other Gospels. So the story of Jesus' life is the highlight over and over and over you read it. And then the highlight of that story of Jesus' life is his death and resurrection. And as you read it, I don't know if you will notice this, but we read, it, it's kind of like the scriptures, if you go from start to end, they're like, flying over time from the creation to new creation. And sometimes it kind of slows down for a minute and it talks about what happens in a specific instance and then it goes on the next. Sometimes it skips a few years here and then it goes into something else and sometimes it skips a hundred years here. Then there's this huge gap of time, right, in between Old and New Testament. There are 400 years that, that it kind of skips over. So it's just like flying over history here. And then we get to the life of Jesus and it slows down again. It's like these snapshots. It slows down and then you get to... Jesus' birth and it skips over a lot of his early life but it slows down, it gets to his ministry these last three years and it's like okay even slower it's moving through sometimes day by day and then this happened and then this happened and then it gets to this last week when he's here in Jerusalem and it slows down even more and then there's chapters committed to this time period of, of right around his death and his resurrection, those days and specifically his death but it's like it comes almost to a halt as it's such a highlight of the book And then it moves on a little bit through Acts, and then eventually we get to the end in Revelation. But you see how just this progression of Scripture highlights this death and this resurrection of Jesus. And there's no gospel apart from those acts. Um, Jesus says, the king himself says in Mark, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's That's what Jesus came to do. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He's talking about the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. The gospel is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Don't forget that one when, um, when you're working through the concepts of the gospel. So, another question for you. If we are wanting to communicate the, the gospel, again, the content of the gospel, there's stuff that we live out to show the gospel as well. But if we're wanting to communicate the content of the gospel, what is the connection between who Jesus is, Messiah and Son of God, what he's done, his death and his resurrection, and the kingdom? I tie those two things together in a couple sentences. What's the connection between the king, who he is, what he's done, and the kingdom?
1: The king reigns over the kingdom.
0: Okay. J- Jesus is the king over this the kingdom of God, yeah. He reigned. By the way, he I think Austin alluded to this, Jesus he, he reigns right now even, though much of the world isn't submitting to his reign, he, he is currently reigning right
1: now from the right hand of God. Um, there's there's no acceptable way to enter the king the kingdom without the work of what the king does yeah for those he allows in That's right
0: so the king grants entrance in, in what he has done and who he is to the kingdom. He's like kind of the doorkeeper or the, or the yeah the, the entrance into the kingdom comes through that king. yeah also unlike
1: a democracy, a king just dictates how the kingdom is. And so when I think of, like, King Jesus dictating his kingdom, I'm like, man, I want to be there. Yeah. That sounds like, I mean, they're in charge of, like, what the kingdom looks like and how it is.
0: Yeah. Versus, it, it's not like we vote for Jesus, and and then if we don't like what he says, then we vote him out and get somebody else. But he, he just is king by his nature of who he is, and so he sets the rules and standards of the kingdom. Yeah. Jesus offers the way back to the perfected kingdom of God. Jesus lived the kingdom of God. We said his his very life displays the kingdom because he's he's just living it out himself. Instead of wiping out this way that humanity has corrupted that kingdom, instead of wiping out all of those subjects, he dies in their place, right? That's the core of the gospel. And because of his resurrection, we too will be resurrected when the king returns to restore his kingdom, just as we read in the last chapter. And now by his presence, the, the spirit of the king, Jesus, is in us and we live and we can even experience the kingdom now to some extent because his spirit is in us living out these kingdom principles. All right. Kingdom, king, call I'm um, not going to talk much about the call tonight except just to ask us this, how does the king call his subjects to respond what, what does he want the members of his kingdom how does he want them to live in submission to Okay, in in submission to the king, yeah, and to his reign, yeah. Is it just when, doing all? We just have to do all the right things and submit to him, or how? How do we actually go about doing that? Maybe I'm not asking it clearly enough. Loving
1: him. Okay.
0: Yes. In faith? Okay, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, Faith, yeah. So throughout the book of Mark, even, we've seen people healed, which is kind of a, this is coming out of Jesus, this is kind of a picture of his kingdom, the healing that his kingdom brings. Um, People are healed time and time again, almost always we see it's because of their faith. Your faith has made you well, your faith has made you well, he tells the people that he heals not everybody gets the kingdom. We we read in the parables of the kingdom, like the seeds, right, or the, the soils, right? There's, there's some that don't get to experience the kingdom, which makes sense, because if you reject the reign of God, then ultimately you don't get the benefit of the reign of God, his kingdom. And instead, submission, like Mary Beth said, or uh, faith, like Mary Beth said, means... Submission to uh, the king, living in submission to the king. Um, we've talked about it a little bit, but that word faith to us oftentimes just means it's something that we think about and believe kind of in our hearts, but faith in scripture is integrally tied to the, the way that we live. We're putting our faith in something, and so we act on that. All right. I should mention, and we'll see in the next couple weeks, he is a loving king. Perfect kingdom, a loving king. Alright. Watch this fly through Mark the first little bit of chapter 14. Mark 14, turn there if you can. I don't want us to like leave a gospel without kind of wrapping our minds around these concepts. And it's gonna come up a little bit in these final weeks. Mark fourteen verse one. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, "Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people." What's the Passover? What what festival? What are they remembering in that? Yeah,
1: glad that's
0: hmm.
1: In the so, God passed
0: over. Yeah. So um, the
1: actual... marked. Oh. Perfect.
0: That's good. The actual Passover is when, when the Israelites marked their doorposts with the blood of a, of a lamb, and instead of the judgment of God that, that came on the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn sons, God, because of the faith that they exercised, passed over their houses. That's the Passover. Okay. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread... What what's kind of going on with that? Anybody help me out with that? It's like it's it's really closely connected with the Passover. In fact, it happens right after the the meal of the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is just remembering. Hey, now that. Now that we've been freed from Pharaoh's hand, we need to get out of town. We need to get out of Egypt, get out of here quickly, head to the promised land. And so the idea of unleavened bread is we're not even going to have time to let the bread rise. Like, we've just got to pick up our stuff and go. And so they celebrate and remember that by not having leavened their bread bread for a week. So at the time of Jesus, Jews would participate in these, these feasts, this is important At Jesus' time, they were hoping for a deliverer to come maybe on that night. The Messiah may even come on the night that they would eat the Passover meal. And so it's no accident or coincidence, I think, in God's beautiful story that the events that are about to happen to Jesus are happening during these festivals, right? No no surprise to us who grew up learning about that Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? This is kind of what we're doing in verse in chapter 14 is kind of the culmination of the conflict between jesus and the religious leaders that started way back in chapter 3 verse 6 and it's continued on and things have really began to heat up in this last week that jesus is in jerusalem and there's these conversations going on between jesus and the pharisees and the sadducees and the scribes and here we are told that the chief priests and scribes is it yeah are wanting to arrest Jesus in secret and kill him. So they want to go under the radar and, and wipe him out. Now, just in those first couple verses, I want to make sure that we recognize two things that are happening at one time. Okay? And if you struggle with the sovereignty of God and, and the goodness of God and man's free will to kind of choose and do his own evil thing, then this one's going to keep you up at night. This is, this is big. On, on one hand, at the same time, the religious leaders want to stop the work of Jesus by killing him. While at the same time, Jesus is accomplishing his goal, his good goal, by choosing to be killed by them. Okay? Quite the paradox. The religious leaders want to stop the work of Jesus by killing him. While Jesus is accomplishing his goal by choosing to be killed by them, and he's already predicted it. in In each of the three Synoptic Gospels, Jesus predicts it three times. You know, shortly before he dies, he, he says, "I'm going to die. I'm going to I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be rejected, killed, raised. Rejected, killed, raised. He wants people to know, I'm I'm calling this. Okay, I'm saying that this is going to happen. I give my life as a ransom for many. That's why I was here. So. Was Jesus killed, or did Jesus lay down his life? Yes, both of those happened somehow in God's sovereign, beautiful plan, and they were happening at the same time. So here's what I want you to just see in this little section. Though the religious leaders didn't know the deep significance of their actions, God was using it to write his story. They they didn't even, I'm I'm sure that they didn't know the significance of this. They thought that they were going to kind of quietly take care of this public nuisance, but they were doing everything God's pen had already written down to accomplish his perfect plan. And ultimately, they're not hurting Jesus, they're hurting themselves by coming up against the reign of God. They don't, stop the kingdom of God, they're forfeiting their right to the kingdom of God by refusing submission to him. Verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done... Will be told in memory of her. Judas is there too, right? Because he's the one that Judas is there too. Judas is the one we read in another gospel that asked the question or is saying, "Hey, that could have been sold for three hundred denarii." Yeah. 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 Ironically, right? Because he's about to sell out Jesus for a lot less than right. Mm -hmm. So just to describe what's happening, a flask was made of alabaster stone. Probably had a long neck on it. And that neck was was sealed off, and in order to use it, you would break the neck of that bottle and be able to pour out the ointment. And for the most part, that's you, you use it all then, or, you, or it, it goes bad. So once the seal is broken, three hundred denari is about a year's salary. So I don't know what your year salary is, but if it's twenty thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever, put that in your mind, Jay. Eight hundred thousand, whatever. <laughs> um, but it's a lot, right? It's not—I mean, it's not everything in the bank, maybe. But it's—I mean, it might have been for this woman. It's—it's it's probably a family heirloom. It's—it's it's worth a lot. I mean, you think about man. I wish I could have my year's salary just—you know—and—and uh, and I don't know, if, like, if I would spend it just like this. In this woman's action, though, we see. Her recognition of the supreme value of Jesus, right? She obviously thinks that Jesus is worth this act of worship. Now, did she actually know that she, before Jesus said something, did she actually know that she was anointing Jesus' body for burial? Or was her gift maybe just, maybe was it was much more meaningful than she even actually knew? Much more meaningful. I think so um, the uh, typically a body would be after somebody dies, then it would be anointed with oils and spices or whatever before it's put in the grave um, but when a criminal is executed, there wouldn't be an anointing They'd take him down off the cross or however they execute him and they put him straight into the grave so God knowing that Jesus would die a criminal's death, or Jesus knowing he would die a criminal's death, he also writes into the story an anointing of his body for burial just before death. Isn't that cool? Like he, he knows how everything is gonna go down. So I think though the woman who we find out in another gospel is Mary, Mark doesn't mention it, she may not have known the deep significance in her action, but God was using it to write his story all she knows is jesus is worth everything i worship him he raised my brother from the dead he deserves it all but she was doing everything god's pen had already written down to accomplish his perfect plan i just think it's beautiful and incredible how these things are falling into place and something in the woman's act causes jesus to say wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world which eventually is going to be everywhere what she has done will be told in memory of her. Right? And we read about her tonight. I think why Jesus connects this woman's act with the gospel is because she's demonstrating a proper response to Jesus of faith. I'll say why I think it's faith. A couple things to notice about her faith. One, it's public. She is not hiding anything. Did you notice the Chief priests and the scribes, they're like trying to figure out how to deal with Jesus and they're wanting to do it kind of behind the curtains. They're scared of people and how people will respond when they end up arresting Jesus. It's at night, right? It's in secret. But she is doing this very public act of faith. It's costly $30,000, $50,000. Our ESV translates the, that beginning of verse 8. It says, she has done what she could. Literally, it means what she had, she did. What she had, she did. So she gave whatever she had. Does that sound like anything we've read recently in Mark? The poor widow, right, and her two small copper coins... Uh, Jesus says she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had and this woman of Bethany what she had she did interestingly the poor widow's offering that we read about seemed too small to people this woman's offering to Jesus seems too large to people but what do they have in common they gave what they had. they gave all that they had and faith that this woman is demonstrating that Jesus is commending for all time is saying that Jesus is worth everything True faith doesn't leave you unaffected. It doesn't make you, like I heard recently, a a 10% Christian, a 10% follower of Jesus. But it is public and it is costly. And there's no turning back once you snap the neck off of it. You can't just go back. It's public and costly and a lifetime commitment. And then we read about Judas. In verse 10, Judas, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas, like the chief priest, is kind of snuck away from the Jesus crowd and is plotting against Jesus. Is, is God's plan failing in this? No, it's going right along as he i written it, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, which would be unusual. Usually the woman would be carrying a water jar. Meet him, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. I think what Mark is doing again is just showing us that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen. Almost like he's determining what is going to happen. Almost like he has written what is going to happen. And of course, verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So people are going along with exactly everything that God's pen had written down in order to accomplish his perfect plan. Verse 17, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. Again, Jesus calling the future here. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? How interesting that when Jesus says, Hey, one of you is going to betray me. They start questioning, is it I? Like, like you, you'd think that you would know yourself if you were going to betray him. But they've seen Jesus say so many things and calm a storm. And everything that he says happens. So they're like, I don't... Maybe it's even me. I don't know. Like, But if Jesus said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This... Is a mind bending verse, 21. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So, like, that sounds like, okay, this is good according to God's plan. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Why do I say that that's so mind bending?
1: Is it because it's almost as if God had in mind that that man should be woed? What? Yep. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. What Jesus says is good or already written. Yeah. Is the is the thing that is causing the woe, or like the action that was written for this human? is worse than if he had never been born yeah
0: what's happening has been written by God but woe to Judas who decided to do it like you tell woe to somebody because they've made a decision to do something that they should have done but this is what has been written by God what's happening here to Jesus is just as it has been written he's going along with that but woe to the person who had decided that things would go along like that. You see how it's kind of it's weird how these two things are happening at once. God, is, he's allowed sin to be written into the story, but the responsibility somehow is still on a character in the story, Judas. I don't know how that works. It's probably similar to how the religious leaders are trying to, they're, they're choosing to kill Jesus, and all the while they're accomplishing God's plan for the redemption of mankind. They seem to be like sneaky and kind of sinister, yet their plan is ultimately making an opening in the story's plot for the sacrifice of the (laughs) Passover lamb. I don't think that we can like comprehend how these things work together, but though God's script is being fulfilled in Judas and the religious leaders, somehow within that they are actively making decisions to kill him and to betray him. Look, if you even look at some of these verses, verse 1, the, the leaders, are they're jealous of Jesus. They don't want people to be turning to Jesus. They're going to lose the authority or the reputation or whatever that they have. And so, in verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. They're consciously seeking that. It's not like they're just robotically doing whatever God said, no, they were seeking to kill Jesus. Judas, this greedy guy who just decides I can profit off of Jesus in verse 11, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. It's these guys making decisions that are not, uh, they're, they're actively choosing their path. They're not robots doing something, but they're choosing it. And I don't know how it works, but somehow, man always chooses in accordance with God's determined plan. But he chooses. And just like I think with the religious leaders and the woman in Bethany, though Judas doesn't know the deep significance of his actions and how he's fulfilling Psalm 41 9. God was using it to write his ultimate story. All Judas knows is, hey, I can use Jesus to make a few bucks, and man, I can get out of this good. But he was doing everything that God's pen had written down already to accomplish his perfect plan. See how we have these characters in God's story, is a true story, right, making choices We have two characters making choices with opposite intentions, the woman and Judas. One chooses to worship Jesus, one chooses to betray him. One chooses to give everything to Jesus, one chooses to get everything he can out of Jesus. And notice how Jesus even compares those two people in the significance of their choices. What the woman chose, faith in Jesus, should live on forever, he says. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her what the man chooses should be wiped from history. Verse 21, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. People don't know, maybe, we don't know maybe the deep significance of our choices, but God is using them to write his amazing story as we are making choices fact, the woman is honored for her choice. He says what she has done will be told in, not in memory of God who programmed her thoughts to do that particular thing. No, he's honoring her because she chose what is good. She, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She chose. Judas chose. Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. So Jesus To finish up here, Jesus is eating with his disciples, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so in a beautiful twist of the story, the Passover meal becomes about Jesus. And the bread that Jesus offers is his very presence. The presence of their deliverer and savior, who Israel had been hoping for, and He gave it. He gives Himself to them, and He says, "Take this, my body." Which we said at the beginning, Jesus embodies the kingdom perfectly, and He gives that body to us, and He says, "You want it? You want the kingdom? Here, receive Me. To drink the cup is to drink." God's new covenant where he grants you to be citizens of his kingdom because of his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ and in that he makes you a worthy citizen of his kingdom and it's a kingdom that he promises here and in the last chapter one day will be restored when King Jesus returns and he eats a similar meal with his disciples and followers in the kingdom of God. It's a incredible story. So many things happening at once. The chief priests are plotting how to kill Jesus, while Jesus is explaining the significance of his death to his followers. We see two individuals, opposite intentions, both accomplishing God's perfect, beautifully written story. So end with this. God has written us into his story. We might not be recorded in the pages of Scripture, but he has made us in, in his perfect stacking of events to play a part in the story of God. And you remember that I was talking about time travel movies at the beginning. You change one little thing, and the end turns out differently. You are important because God created your character to bring about his end or his restored kingdom. You might think that your role in that is insignificant, but can I tell you that it's not insignificant. Every detail of the storyline works together. So you eliminate your part and it changes the story. You think, well, my part isn't as significant as these characters in the Bible that I read about. And I will point out, Mark doesn't even name this woman in Bethany. He just says, this is just some woman. She's in some leper's house. And she does this humble gesture, doesn't even really know the significance of what she's doing. And Jesus says, you see that beautiful faith? That's what I want to publish forever. That's what I want people to follow. She had no idea. You just chose to worship Jesus. So what will your place in the story of God be? What will Noah Church's place in the story of God be? Everything we choose to do somehow plays into the sovereign script that God has already written. But remember, I don't want it to say, this isn't robotic or fatalistic, like you have no excuse. Well, I can't help what I'm doing because God's already written it down. I've had people tell me before, somebody told Mary Beth and I a while back, well, you guys are just good people, and I'm just kind of a bad person, and I think God just uses both of those things to kind of balance out each other. It's just kind of what we've been given in life, and so I just can't really help it. And it's somebody not wanting to take responsibility and just to kind of shift the blame onto God for how he's created people. But there is no hint in Scripture that we don't consciously make our own Decisions, our own decisions. And at any point, you can repent. That, that word means change your mind, change your decision about something and decide to do or live some way else, right? Jesus calls us to repent and to, to change and to think differently and to do differently about things. Next week, we're going to see a whole bunch of people blow it in seemingly unforgivable ways And we think, well, how could Peter recover from what he's about to do? Could he just crawl into a hole and say, well, I guess that was my role, to deny Jesus three times. No, remember, like Jesus knows all of that is going to happen. All of the betrayal and the denial, the running away of his disciples. Yet he gives to these people, he gives his body, he pours out his blood for them and for you and me. And he says, I want you to have me and my kingdom and You're not going to change my story, but you can choose yours. And remember I said, the Pharisees aren't really hurting Jesus like they want to. They're really hurting themselves. They're they're carrying out Jesus, God's plan. Instead, they're just hurting themselves because they're forfeiting the kingdom of God in their own life. It's the same thing with Judas. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, Now, it's important for the sake of the world and God's redemptive plan that there was a betrayer to turn in Jesus so he would go to his death and resurrection so that mankind could be redeemed. But for the sake of that man, for Judas' sake, he just hurt himself. He was going along with God's plan, what God had already determined to happen in him, what God had predicted all the way back from David and the Psalms. But as he's going along with it, he's just hurting himself. And we know that the end of Judas' life um, was certainly not very kingdom of god Oriented. So, will you choose to try to buck the kingdom of God? If so, I, why? Why would anybody choose that? You can't change his story. You're hurting no one but yourself when you live in those decisions. So here's the choice. You. You can't change God's story that he's written, but you can choose yours. You can't change God's story, but you can choose yours. You can choose to reject the kingdom of God by rejecting Jesus. Even in that, God somehow, no doubt, is going to use you in his story and for his glory, like he used Pharaoh. But for your sake, you'd be better off never having been born than doing that choosing your own hurt and destruction and jesus still reigns as king and his plans will still be accomplished or we can choose to repent to believe the gospel to put our faith in the person and in the work of jesus and with each choice that we make pour out everything that we have at his feet and one day you'll find that God has also then written you into the end of his story where you're eating and drinking with him at his table in his perfected kingdom forever. Can't change God's story, but you can choose yours. Next week we will continue Mark 14. We have just a few more weeks in this book. Let's pray. Father, I'm amazed by your sovereignty and wisdom. Your mind is so much greater than ours, infinitely greater than ours. We couldn't have put this thing together. God, I admit, I, my mind falls short of understanding how your sovereign plan works in connection with the choices that I make day in, day out, but it's clear to me, I think it's clear to us from your word, God, that you call us to repent and to turn to you and to exercise faith in you, to choose who we will serve. I pray in each of our decisions tonight and tomorrow, in the coming days, that we would choose your kingdom, that we would submit to the spirit of Jesus, the king of the kingdom that is within us, and that we would live in the goodness of that and look forward to the hopeful fulfillment of your kingdom when you come again. God helps to be people that just pour out our lives before you, Help us not just to use you for for what you might bring into our lives, but to pour everything at your feet, the King of our kingdom,
1: and follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.